Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Today, I am so delighted to have Adam Rosen here. How are you, Adam? Wesley and I am doing great, and I uh, really appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. Let me tell you a bit about Adam. He's an entrepreneur that loves to support business owners and share his roller coaster startup journey to help those on a similar path. He is the founder of Email Outreach Company, where they do automated email outreach to get startups on more sales appointments without the hassle. So the roller coaster that business owners are on, that is your passion. How did you get started and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so I never held a true nine to five job. So coming out of college, I always share when I started my first company, I was a a bright eyed, bushy tailed pup, you know, having no idea what was in store being an entrepreneur. I did run an entrepreneur accelerator program at my university. I did a one year MBA. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the world. But as you know, as any entrepreneur knows, you don't truly know what it's like to be an entrepreneur until you're thrown into the fire. So I had a tech startup for about five years. I sold the company in 2019. One thing I'd love to preface is one of my problems with the startup world is I feel like it's over glamorized, you know, like we're always like, hey, how's your startup going? It's, oh, it's going well. We're trending in the right direction. How's it going with you? Oh, trending in the right direction. Meanwhile, their house is burning. I like to be uh, with what my experience uh, has been like. So uh, for me, it was a tough journey. We did have an acquisition, but it wasn't a fancy acquisition like we all dream about. So anyway, that's how my, my business and my entrepreneurial career got started. So tell us about, like, let's peel back the layers, because as you said, everybody thinks that it's glamorous out here on these streets. As an entrepreneur, it's like, oh my gosh, you work for yourself. I'm like, oh my gosh, I work for myself, right? So what were some of those moments of that you had no clue about until you actually became an entrepreneur? I'm not kidding when I say literally every part of it, but I'd say like the biggest thing, because again, going into some of my problems with the startup world is I feel like we overemphasize certain parts of running a business, which in my opinion are not as important. So for example, like raising capital, that's what people tend to celebrate versus having a profitable, sustainable business. You know, it's, hey, can you build the next billion dollar massive company versus can you build a company that is profitable where you can get new customers, keep those customers, and again, have a margin that can work for you for the long term. So that's one of them. I always talk about product market fit. Until we get to product market fit as a business owner, we're going to be just constantly clogging holes in a leaky bucket. So those are two of the key ones. But I mean, you could go down the line with with a million other examples. So let's talk about this raising capital, because a lot of people are like, I need money, I need capital, whether they're going to venture capital or they're going to get loans or whatever it is, chat with us because I know from my experience, when I talk to people who have raised capital, it's like, as soon as you get that money, it's like you think your problems are over, but they really have just begun. Because once you take somebody's money, it's a whole different ball game. Absolutely. One of the things I do on the side is I, I coach entrepreneurs virtually once a week through an amazing company called Eureka, which was recently acquired by Zen Business. So any entrepreneurs highly recommend checking them out. But anyway, last night, the class I was teaching was around raising money, putting together a pitch deck. And I raised money in my first startup. It wasn't a lot. It was around $700,000. And I was very lucky. Our investors, and really our, our main investor who invests the majority of the capital, he and his team were so, so lenient with us. They were not tough on us in terms of like some entrepreneur or some investors you hear horror stories with. I didn't have that experience, but now I have a bootstrap company. And one of the stories I share with entrepreneurs is some of the realities of when you raise capital. 
And one of those realities I like to share is a company that probably a lot of people have heard of. It's a company called FanDuel. So FanDuel and DraftKings, those are kind of two of the big ones, the early ones around sports gambling, online sports gambling. And FanDuel sold for over $500 million. So I think it was like $559 million. And I always ask the entrepreneurs, so who would sign up for that? Of course, we all would. But then I say, how much money do you think the founders walked away with? And I don't know what happened since the lawsuits, but as you could probably tell from that, they didn't walk away with much. In fact, they walked away with zero. Zero, zilch, nada, because of how deals were structured. So of course, that's a harsh example, but that is a reality when you raise capital is, as the entrepreneur, you are no longer the primary shareholder. You do not get priority. And then of course, anytime you raise capital, now you have a boss. You are not the sole decision maker. You are not the sole owner. So there's good in it if you need it, but I don't recommend entrepreneurs say, hey, that's the solution to all my problems because it's not. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. Most of the times people are moving into entrepreneurship because they're like, I'm tired of working with people. Like I have a client right now that she's always trying to hire me. I'm like, I can't work for you because I don't want to answer to anybody, right? Like, and that's the thing. It's like once you start taking money from investors, you now have a boss or multiple bosses. And so a lot of times, as you said, people will take money from this place and then they're taking more money from another place to pay this place off. And then this compounding effect. And at the end of the day, you're like, I'm doing all this work. This is my product. This is my baby. And now I've sold my company and I'm just to the same place I was five or 10 years ago when I started it. Entrepreneurship can be one of, if not the greatest source of freedom for human beings. It could be an amazing source of freedom, but on the flip side, entrepreneurship can also make you feel like you are stuck. You are claustrophobic in a tiny little box. And I know at times my first tech startup, and I was, again, I was a pup, but I was like, I'm going to do this for my whole life. You know, I'm going to billionaire or bust, IPO or bust. This is what I'm going to do forever. But as I've now been removed from it from a few years, I realize just how stuck I was and how there really wasn't a light at the end of the tunnel. And there's a million reasons why that was the case. But entrepreneurship can be a great source of freedom or it can be the opposite. Absolutely. And having that mindset and really understanding like, what is my end goal? Is my end goal that I want to be this billion dollar company? Is my end goal I want to get acquired by somebody? Is my end goal that I just want to make a good living for me and my family, employ a few people, but you know, I'm really okay just working 20 hours a week. Like start with the end in mind. What is your end goal in starting your company? That makes me so happy to hear because, uh, Last night, one of the questions that one of the entrepreneurs asked, and she's doing an amazing job. She's a really awesome company. And she said, Adam, how do I know if I should raise capital? How do I know if my business should be a business that raises capital? And I answered it not as eloquently as you just did, but with the same premise is, what is your end goal? And then just reverse engineer back from that because- Look, if you want to be a billion dollar company, yes, you need to raise capital and, and build the systems and make the hires and build out the infrastructure to do that. But if you want to have a business where maybe you work 20 hours a week, it can pay for your lifestyle, but you don't want to kill yourself over it. Don't raise capital. So it really depends on what your end goal is. So I'm really happy you said that. And so chat with us about the, the second aspect that you mentioned, the product market fit. Because there's a lot of people out here making lots of um, stuff that nobody wants. <laughs> so talk to us about that. Yeah, especially with your podcast, it's a lot of great sellers. Like I'm sure there's the entrepreneurs that are listening and tuning in. They might be more sales-focused entrepreneurs, which is the bucket I fall under more than a product-focused entrepreneur. You know, there's tend to be really great product people that sometimes are, you know, usually engineer types. And then there's sales-focused entrepreneurs. Both 
play an important role, but both need to focus on either side of it. So with my first company, the reason why we were acquired, but not acquired for the dollar amount that we all dream of when we start a company is because we never got the true product market fit. So we were good at sales. Like we had an interesting concept that was different, that could get us meetings, that would get us sales. But our retention was nowhere near where you need to be as a tech startup in order to have the 5X, 10X, 15X multipliers that we all dream of when we sell our company. So the way I define product market fit is, does somebody not only buy from you once, but buy from you over and over and over again? And is it painful for them to leave? Is it painful where if you said, I'm done doing this business, are they going to be in pain? So those are some of the things I look at when I see is a business at true product market fit. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that really, when we think about a true product market fit, and I like the way that you put it in the two buckets, because as an entrepreneur that had a sales background, I'm like, oh, I can sell. I'll sell. That's easy. <laughs> yeah. The sales part of being an entrepreneur was absolutely easy. But what my challenge was is I was selling, but we couldn't keep up with the demand. And so the more you sell, if you can't keep up with the demand, then you start losing customers because the quality of the product, the quality of the service that you're providing them can't keep up. So you really have to balance those two things. The first nine, 10 months of my current company, it was so painful because my co-founder and I, we love sales. It's who we are. It's what we love to do. We love to drive new business. It's enjoyable for us. But for the first, again, about 10 months of our business, we said, we are just keeping our three beta customers and we want to make sure that they love what we offer. They are getting value from it. They want to continue paying us month over month and want to pay us more money because we're providing more value. But for the first, again, almost 10 months, we didn't bring on any new customers, but it allowed us to build the systems, the infrastructure, the processes so that when we do want to pour on new customers, and that's what we've been doing now, we have the systems in place. We know it works. We know how to service them. So let's dig deeper into that 10 months of no new customer acquisition. I think I probably would have been like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that sounds very difficult, especially when you're like itching. Like, I just want to sell. I just want to have a, a discovery call. I just want to do it. So tell me, what were some of the, the positives that you had for really, really spending that time ideating, understanding your product? And what were some of the drawbacks or the things that you may have done a little differently in that 10 months? Yeah, great question. So in terms of what we focused on, so in the beginning especially, so I my company's email outreach company. So we're basically like an outsourced SDR for startups. So we do cold email outreach to get our, our startups on more sales events. We do. So in the beginning, it was literally me responding to every email for our clients, booking every appointment, which was not fun. It was not enjoyable at all. I do find joy in that type of stuff too, so I shouldn't say not at all, but it's not the stuff that I wanna be spending my time doing. But it was so important because it allowed me then to build out the systems that we can make hires so that I never have to do that again. So that was some of the good, was every single groove of the process I felt and my co-founder felt so that we could then build out the systems and the processes so that our team can execute this so that when we scale, we're not doing, you know, the dirty work in the weeds all day, every day. So I'd say that was the most helpful piece of it. And then if I were to do it all over again, what I would have done, it's a good question. I'd say probably got a, a fourth customer a little bit sooner on just to spice things up a little bit because we had... The way our learning structure was like customers one through three, we had that again, about 10 months of learning from, which was great. Customers then four through 10, for, or really four through eight, I'd say, gave us a whole nother learning that we didn't experience before. So we had like a painful growing pain from customer four through eight. But now we're at 22 customers and growing, but it, I'd say maybe getting customers four, five, and six a little bit quicker, just so we could experience more of those growing pains a little sooner. That, that's maybe the one thing I would have done a little bit differently. 
So when you went from selling your first company to deciding on the second business you wanted to have, why did you decide to go into this particular type of organization? One thing I've learned is that, you know, we don't necessarily do what we think we want to do, but we do what the market tells us, hey, this is what you're good at. So with my first tech startup, we had some of the biggest companies in the world. Think like B of A, Amazon, Apple. We were not a super well-funded startup. We did not have a lot of connections in the space. So how we got almost every customer was through cold email outreach. So even think like MasterCard, we got them as a client from cold emailing. Now their former CEO, Ajay Banga, one of the busiest people in the world who was generous enough to get on multiple phone calls, passed us to a CHRO, and they bought our product. So cold email was really like the accelerator for everything that we did. So anyway, fast forward, when I sold the company, I started to do a lot of work advising and working with startups and small businesses. And it was one of the startups that I was advising just said, hey, Adam, my head of sales is struggling to get meetings on the books. Can you talk to her and see if you can help? And I talked to her. I saw what the problem was. I called up my co-founder. I said, hey, man, let's build something out for these guys. And that's how the first version of a uh, version one, I should say, of email outreach company started. So it was very much just, hey, I have this problem and I thought we could solve it. And we did. So many people don't think about that. I literally asked somebody recently, I'm like, what is your true passion and what are you really good at? So when you start, sometimes people are starting side hustles. Maybe, you know, you're working full time in a company and you're like, I'm going to start this side hustle. Or maybe you're thinking this business that I'm doing today, I don't enjoy it. And my business is very different than it was when I started it five years ago, because I was like, oh, this is what I think I'm really good at. And I was like, oh, that's blood sucking work. I don't like that. That's not for me because <laughs> I used to do sales and marketing. Right. And I'm like, I don't. I'm sorry, I actually don't care if your website is down because I'm over here trying to help somebody close a deal, right? And so I had to realize what my passion was and what I was good at. And so when you took this thing that you realized that you were really good at and you turned it into a business idea, you turned it into a business concept, you told us about the 10 months of ideation. How'd you go about finding a business partner? How'd you go about really taking the idea, the passion, the thing you're good at and turning it into a profitable business? Yes, I'm very lucky. You know, with my tech startup, at one point we technically had, I technically was one of five co-founders. So there was technically four others. It was really me and two others, but there was technically me, I was one of five co-founders. It ended up with me and one other co-founder in that business. So we've known each other now since 2014. So eight, nine years, we've worked together closely. We've been through, you know, some really tough stuff together where I could have bailed and said, hey man, good luck. He could have said, hey man, I'm out of here, good luck. We could have bailed on each other during some really dark times and neither of us did that. So with this company, it's just my same business partner from my previous tech startup. We have a great relationship. We travel together a lot. So I'm a digital nomad and we spend about half the year traveling together too, as we build the business, which is really helpful. So I was very fortunate that I had a great business partner from my previous tech startup that balances me out. And that's how we started this company together. Mm. Yeah, many times when you're in a partnership, I remember this older guy that I, I met uh, many years ago when I was still a sales rep. He was like, Wesleyan, the only ship that always sails is a partnership. Yeah. So in all of these years that you guys have known each other and been working together, I know that it hasn't always been easy. But when you guys have a conflict or a difference of opinion, how do you go about resolving those things? You know, it's old school, just communication. Like that's one thing is I trust him he trusts me and we know that we're always going to be looking out for each other's best interest. There's no manipulation in it. It's just very simple. When there's an issue, I go to him or he goes to me. We talk it out. We resolve it. We've done that forever with some really tough conversations. 
And uh, we always end up on the other side with it resolved and in a much better place. So he's a little bit older than I am. He's, I think, five years older than I am. I'm more of like a definitely more passionate, emotional, more of like a, a fire spark. He's I've never seen him raise his voice once. He's very calm, reserved, thoughtful. Um, so we balance each other out in a lot of ways. So yeah, just the best way to resolve any conflict, as we all know, is just to talk it out. And I just wish people, it doesn't matter if it's business, personal, politics, whatever, if we did a better job of just doing less talking and more listening, more understanding, we'd be in a good place. Like we were talking about before we got on that uh, one of your previous episodes with the gentleman from procurement. Like I knew nothing about the procurement world, but as all salespeople, we just kind of have a bad opinion of procurement. But it's just because I never really got to understand the procurement side of the house. So even hearing his perspective was so enlightening where it's like, yeah, man, I just got I got to listen more, understand more before just assuming. So I think it's the same with anything is the more we could just talk things out, listen and empathize with the other person, the less fighting we'll have and the more understanding we'll have. Communication is key, like you said, to any relationship, whether it is a, a personal relationship, a business relationship, a relationship with subordinates or even those who that you report to. It's you have to really transition from listening to respond to listen to understand, right? Like I am listening to you so I understand what you're saying and so that I can reflect back what you're saying and like, okay, is this really what I understood? And one of the things that people tell me and I think I just do it naturally and maybe I've had a lot of practice. They're like, you're a really good podcast host. And I'm like, really? (laughs) Thank you. And it's because when I listen to my guests, I really, I'm stepping into your world And I want to understand more about the topics that you're talking about. And I really empathize and I care about them, right? And it's the same thing when you have a business relationship or a partnership with someone. You have to make sure that that person may be more reserved or maybe they're more flamboyant or outgoing. And how do you balance them? How do you guys get in a meeting and allow each person to show up as their best self? Amen. And I love what you said again. And I'm not just saying this, you know, to boost you up, like genuinely what you said sparked such a, uh, such a passionate thought of mine. So with my first tech startup, I was not on the sales side of the house to start. My job was getting students from universities to sign up on the platform. But then my current co-founder was like, hey, Adam, I think you could do a good job selling on the corporate side. When I first got in there, I was trained to do, and I'm sure people might know of Brian Tracy, like an old school sales guy who has his very set questions. And at first I was trained from my other co-founder of, here's the questions you need to ask before you say anything about what we do. I was like, okay, sounds good. So I would do that on my calls and it was so painfully awkward because it was so disingenuous. It was like, I'm just reading a script of here's the questions I need to ask before I get to anything about us because that's how you sell. Mm. And my other co-founder said, hey, Adam, here's all you need to ask. Go into a call and just say, how can I help? Something simple like that. And then just flow and ask the questions you genuinely want to know answers to. And that's one of the biggest problems I see in sales in general, whether it's founders that are selling or salespeople in general. We're not robots. We're human beings. Ask questions you genuinely want to know answers to. Stop thinking about what's the next question you should be asking because people can always feel that. Like I can feel it with the podcast right here. You're not thinking about what the next question is. It's so obvious when people are. You're not thinking about that. We're just having a conversation. And it's sales. The more you do that, the more you're going to generate trust because people can feel authenticity and people can also feel when something is staged. So the more authentic you can be, the better. And being genuinely curious, I think, is such a great trait of of successful salespeople. I love it. Could not have said it better myself. I was doing a sales training a few weeks ago, and I was like, okay, so if we get an inbound lead and this person calls and asks about, so I work with a lot of manufacturing companies, I need this kind of wire. 
what's the first question you guys are going to ask? And I literally had just taught this concept like five minutes before. And they were like, well, how much do you need? Well, well, what price do you want? I was like, seriously, are you not going to ask what is this going to be used for? Like literally, I need you to stop thinking so much about your product. Stop thinking so much about your quota. Stop thinking so much about you and step into the customer's world. And when you show up to that discovery meeting or you get an inbound call or you're doing any kind of meeting, I, you just need one question. How are you going to open the meeting? After that, you should, it should all be based on what you have heard. Absolutely. Like when I go into a sales meeting to sell my own services, I know what things I need to know to know if we can help them or not. Like I know what are the basic things that I need to know, but I don't need to say, here's this, this, and this, here are my three questions. Like you're going to get the information just by having a genuine conversation, by asking, learning, digging in deeper. So you're spot on with that. And the more genuinely curious we can be, the more effective we'll be as not just salespeople, business people, human beings, personal relationships, everything. You mentioned that you're a digital nomad. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'm homeless in terms of like, I don't have a, a home base. So since November, 2021, I've been just bopping place to place. I typically spend about two to three months in different locations. So yeah, I just, I go from place to place about half the year. Like I said earlier, I do travel with my co-founder, but yeah, I go from place to place, typically do an Airbnb or, or finding another place to rent out apartments long-term. So why did you choose to do that in 2021? What was the reasoning behind that? Well, my co-founder was already traveling. So he was in Italy at the time and my lease was coming up and we were starting to take this company a little more seriously and seeing where we could take it. So it started by me just going out to see him in Italy. And then it was, hey, let's go to Switzerland next. And then it's, hey, let's go here next. And it just kept going. And there was never a place where I'm like, I want to settle down here long-term. I get so much energy and inspiration from being in different parts of the world, meeting different people, experiencing new cultures. So I love it. I enjoy it. And it's good for my work. And it's also good for just my personal life and my joy and my understanding of the world. What would you say the biggest benefit of being a digital nomad that you had no idea about before is? The biggest benefit from a learning, because we all can say like the, you know, meeting new people or seeing these beautiful places in the world or the weather or, or whatever. That's of course amazing. But for me, it's the learning and the adaptability part. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, and I know when I had my first tech startup, I was in Boston for about five years and my routine was pretty much the same. It was office, gym, hanging out a little bit with my friends, you know, office, gym, hanging out a little bit with friends. So you get stuck in that world. You see the same type of people. You go to the same type of restaurants. You go to the same coffee shops. You see the same types of people. And it can be easy. You know, you get comfortable with that. The challenge here is every month almost, I'm going into a brand new place where I really don't know anybody. I usually don't, I don't always speak the language I'm going to. I don't know what restaurants are good. I don't know maybe if it's even the safest place to be. Like there's so much uncertainty everywhere you go and it forces me to learn, to adapt, and to also get my mind right so that I can be a good leader for my company, for my customers, for my employees, for my co-founder, for myself, and also be a good son, brother, friend, all that stuff. So for me, it's can I deal with all that uncertainty and still be my best? So I'd say that's the thing I didn't expect, but it's probably been the best for me long-term from my being a digital nomad. Mm, that's good. I know in my career of being a traveling outside field salesperson, I've traveled a lot throughout the country, throughout the world. And I agree with you. It's when you get to step into somebody else's culture, when you step into their world, you learn so many different things, right? Like 
I would always be, okay, when I'm going on a business travel, I have to wake up, I have to go work out in the gym, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do that. But sometimes hotels don't have gyms. So what do you do? You go walk outside, you go do this, you like, you ideate, you figure out what is happening in that place. And as a, I know for me as a salesperson, that actually helped me really work better with my customers because I'm stepping into your world. So when I'm in North Dakota, it's very different than when I'm in Houston, right? And so I have to understand the cultural differences and the things that are acceptable there that may not actually be acceptable here. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're this awesome email outreach guru, and I think this is like a crystal ball. I wish I had a crystal ball. And so there are a lot of people out there, whether they're an individual contributor, an entrepreneur, and they're really trying to crack the code. So what would be one of your tidbits if you could reach into your crystal ball to really start cracking that cold of doing effective email outreach? Yeah, I'll give a high level for a couple of things and I'm always happy to get as nerdy as anybody wants around cold email. I'm probably one of the few people in the world that actually enjoys talking about cold email. So I'm always happy to get nerdy with that. But number one, it's about the list. So knowing who your buyer is, do you know who your customers, what type of companies, what types of people within those companies would benefit from the solution to their problem? So one, it's knowing who your buyer is. Then two, it's getting a good, clean list where you're not going to get a bunch of bounces when you do your outreach. Because if you do that, you go in spam. Once you go in spam, there's a million problems that go into that. So number one, got to get a good list. Number two, got to write a good email, of course. Now, the basics of emails, I am not someone who likes gimmicky emails at all. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. So get straight to the point. Subject line, straight to the point. What's the value prop in six to eight words, tops. Here's the problem you solve. In the email, I'll give the exact structure we use. We're sending over 250,000 emails a week across our customers. We use the same type of structure for everybody. So their name, first line, what's the purpose of your email? One sentence, new paragraph. What's the problem you solve? One sentence, two sentences tops, new paragraph. Then what's your solution? One sentence. New paragraph. What's your social proof? So we work with company X, Y, and Z. We've been featured in this article, this article, this article. What's your social proof? Then lastly, what's your call to action? Do you have 15 minutes to chat? So simple structure that anybody can use, plug and play for, of course, your company, your industry. Third thing, follow up. You gotta follow up correctly. So we do a nine point sequence for our emails. One main email, eight follow-up emails. The power is in the follow-up. If you don't follow up, you're only getting 17% of the meetings you could be getting. It takes on average over three emails to get one successful meeting booked. And we get about 15% of our meetings booked on the eighth email, on the eighth follow-up, I should say. So you got to follow up, but you got to do it right. Don't send a long, bulky email. Don't patronize them for not responding to you. Make it short, sweet, and to the point and easy for them to say, hey, I'm not interested and you stop following up. So those are three things. Then the bonus thing is you have to have the systems. So what's your tool for sending the emails? What's your system for managing the inbox? What's your system to make sure that you're not following up with people that said they're not interested? So then you got to build all the systems internally so that when you do send all these emails and, and you get a bunch of responses back, you're able to manage it where it doesn't overwhelm you. So those would be my three tips plus a bonus. Wow, that was a masterclass on cold emailing in five minutes going and I really I like that you you start with the human because if you're not emailing the right humans it doesn't matter how good this email is but you need to really mm -hmm. be very laser focused on who that ideal client is and really taking it a level further it's like who is the person and what is the one product the one service not the 50 million things you do just one-to-one -one. it has to be very very laser specific 
Nobody has time to read. Nobody's reading this, these long paragraphs. So be very intentional with that. And I love to say the fortune is in the follow-up. Like if you are only following up and even if this is after a discovery call, whatever it is, like you have to know that it's, and the thing is I love using myself because as a business owner, I get a lot of cold emails and sometimes I get things I'm interested in, but I'm busy. And so I'm like, oh, I want to, I'm going to do that. Mm. Oh, here they come again. Right. And so it's like, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. But I just forget or I don't have time. But sometimes it's that, like you said, sixth, seventh, eighth email. And I'm like, now I'm going to book it. You're tenacious because it triggers in the mind of your prospect. This person is tenacious. They're not one and done. So like I said, that was a complete masterclass of everything that you can do to really get started in your cold email campaign. Yeah, and the, the surprising part for some, and, and even me to an extent, is the responses we get on those follow-ups. I'd say 90% of them are very positive. They thank us for the persistence, or they thank us thinking we're our customers for the persistence. Very rarely are people, you know, throwing up their middle finger saying, you're the worst, I hate you, stop emailing me. And if that ever does happen, no, it has way more to do with just maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're not feeling, maybe they're, you know, husband's been nagging them, whatever it is. So just understand the majority of people will appreciate your persistence if you do it right. And the few that'll get mad at you, any marketing that we do, I don't care if it's a billboard, an Instagram ad, a, a cold email, there's people that love it and there's people that don't love it. And that's just the game of marketing in general. So that's the piece on persistence. And one other thing I want to mention too, because you talked about it earlier, when we're selling, we will do things that will irritate our buyers, right? And we do these pet peeves. One of the best things I do to remind myself to not do some of those, you know, things that frustrate us as salespeople or frustrate us about salespeople is to get on sales calls ourselves. Let people try to sell you on their offering because you're going to learn things. Oh, that I really like that. I like how they approach that. Or, ooh, I did not like how they tried to pressure me like this. I did not like how they talked to me right here. I did not like the questions they asked. One of the best ways to feel out, like, are we selling in a way that we would want to be sold is by getting on sales calls ourselves. So I don't want to forget that from earlier because that, that sparked a thought in my head. I love that. And I am very complimentary. If somebody mm -hmm. sends me a cold email, I'm like, that was a really good email. And I'm interested in this. Let's schedule time. Or no, I'm sorry. That was a good email, but maybe not. I get really upset about the LinkedIn spamming. And so I'm like, like, I will literally take maybe an hour every few weeks. And I'm like, this is the problem with this. Stop. Like, do not do this. This is wrong to do. But you're right. It's like, if I am a salesperson and like, I literally have to tell sales leaders and sales teams this and people who are at the top of the food chain, you are commanding your salespeople to send cold emails, but you get mad when you get them. Like, how does that even work in your brain? Like you do need to, you don't have to meet with everybody. You don't have to talk to everybody, but you have to be the change you want to see. If you expect your salespeople to do this, you should accept meetings sometimes for things that you may be interested in. Absolutely. And, and like for me, I forgot who mentioned this to me. I don't know if I watched it or if it was a mentor that told me this, but one of the important pieces I believe of being an entrepreneur is to move your industry forward. So like leave your industry in a better place than when you found it, than when you got there, than when you started the company. And like for me, sometimes people are like, oh, I want to hear some of your tricks to cold email, but I don't want to hear everything because you don't want to give away the secret sauce. And I'm like, no, I'll give away all of my secret sauce. I really don't care because if everybody is cold emailing better, 
the industry will be looked upon a heck of a lot better. There will be a lot of entrepreneurs that are now making a lot more money than they would have had, growing a lot more, employees that are going to be doing a lot better, et cetera, et cetera. So like for me, it's I want to leave this industry in a better place. And I feel like that's a key thing for any entrepreneurs. Can you move the industry forward by making our change and our impact in the best way possible? And I absolutely love what you said. I love to tell people, especially entrepreneurs or small business owners, they're like, oh my gosh, you can't give away too much for free. Oh, what if you do this? What if you do that? And I tell them, if I give you all of this knowledge and you go implement and you do it yourself, fantastic. You are not my ideal client because my client isn't going to do this themselves, right? And it's the same thing with you. It's like, I will teach you. And if you're a DIY, just like the person who will go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get all the stuff and they won't pay somebody, it's like, you're not my ideal client. So I don't care. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. This has been a fantastic conversation, Adam. I want to know what is the one best way that people can get in contact with you if they want to learn more? Uh, you can check me out on eocworks.com. That's our website. And then on social media, at Adam I. Rosen, R-O-S-E-N, LinkedIn, Instagram. That's primarily where I hang out. Awesome. 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 This has been a fantastic conversation. And by the time this episode airs, who knows where you'll be? You're in Hawaii, in New York, you can go to Europe. So who knows where in the world you'll be? But Keep doing this amazing work that you're doing, educating entrepreneurs and business owners and salespeople how to have better cold email hygiene and sharing your stories of entrepreneurship. This has been fantastic. No, thank you, Wesley. And I, I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure chatting with you um, and keep up the great work. You're, uh, you're an important voice in this world and I want to keep hearing you growing. So thank you for all that you do. Thanks so much. I definitely appreciate it. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, each and every day, strive to be 1% better. Until next time.